Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out if you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker, turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Welcome to Gen X Mixtape, a nostalgic podcast dedicated to the art of making mixtapes and the Gen Xers who made them. This is part two of Name Drops, where we curate a mixtape featuring songs that name drop other celebrities. And I think we decided last time to name this one Say My Name. Say My Name, yep, which is perfect because I don't know none of the songs that we chose. Um, well, and that's not true. I do have one track toward the end of Side B that might have worked, but Say My Name, nonetheless, I think it's a great choice. And we remembered to name the... <laughs> To name the mixtape. Yeah, we remembered. Just the fact that we remembered is an achievement because we were very good at forgetting to do that. So um, how are you doing with the hot summer oh, and, and the time off? Loving it. I I, I, I don't know. I, there, there are few career choices that you can make that allow you to enjoy the summer weather mm-hmm. in the way the teaching does. And it just, and it's been a beautiful summer. I, I've been just having so much fun it's 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 a thrill it, it, well, every year it's a thrill it just it the problem is it gets shorter every year right uh, you know but um no i've been but we can't complain about that because our listeners have to work all year exactly. most of them and yeah. so uh, yeah it's, it, it no. sounds like we're complaining yeah no i'm not asking for sympathy by any means but it, it's it's been a good summer i mean we've yeah. i've done a lot of day trips uh, I, I love road tripping and i'm, I'm just kind of focusing on ohio this summer cool. so just driving around seeing parts of our state that i've never seen before well if you make it down to cincinnati go to the american sign museum oh i love it yeah have you been there yeah okay. oh it's fantastic yeah, it's fun. yeah cincinnati i think i'm pretty much exhausted joel when he you know he just graduated from uc but um in all the times for the past four years that i would drive down to to see him um yeah i, I feel like i have cincinnati pretty much discovered at this point but i've been doing a lot of like I wouldn't say rural uh, entirely, but a lot of small towns, Amish country. Um, been looking as BG students. We went to Toledo, but we never really learned Toledo. There's a lot, especially in the Sylvania, Perrysburg area. There's, hmm. I don't know. I've just been driving around. It, it's been kind of fun. So Very cool. Might give you a call. See if you want to join me for some of them. Yeah, that sounds good. But uh, yeah, it's been a good summer so far. All right, shall we just jump into this? Oh, I was going to ask you oh. about yours, but we we can. My, mine is a, it's a working summer, but it's a summer that I'm enjoying because I'm enjoying the work I'm doing. If that makes sense, um, I'm also better when I have structure and have a schedule. Mm. Uh, so I got this crazy idea that I wanted. Well, I kept resisting this idea for for many months uh, about writing a book, uh, a nonfiction, for the first time. Mm. And as you know, I've been volunteering at a national park doing right. historical tours, and 
you know, I, when I wrote my tour and started collecting resources for it, I just did a lot of reading, acquired a lot of information. And there's a lot of stuff, a lot of, there's an angle of this book that I haven't seen in any other book on this topic. So that's kind of why I feel like I need to write this. So I've been spending four or five hours a day, every day researching. Now I do it a lot of times out on the, uh, on the, on the deck in the sunshine. Oh yeah. But I'm loving it. And I think when you're passionate about a particular subject matter, right, it doesn't become work. Like, you know, I'll literally start my research in the morning and four hours will go by and it just seems like five minutes. I had no idea you were writing again this summer, let alone nonfiction. Well, it's the first time, yeah. And, and, and I think the difference between a readable, when I talk, of, like, for history, obviously scholarly works are scholarly works, but the David McAuliffe's, the Ron Chernow's, the, they call it dad history. They always have to ruin every cool thing by adding dad to it. Uh, yeah, like, like it's... <laughs> but but it's, it's, it's narrative nonfiction. So instead of re- reading, like, a dissertation... It reads like like a story, like a novel, but everything is 100% factual. It's not historical fiction. It's narrative nonfiction, gotcha. if that yeah. makes sense. Oh, yeah. It's, it's not encyclopedic. And yeah. most of the stuff that, that and I'm going to be writing about William McKinley, which shouldn't surprise anyone, we're from Canton. Um, William McKinley and, and his wife, Ida, and yeah, there's just no really good narrative um, that tells their story and I, I think so I don't know if I'll if, if I'll finish it you know I've learned not to ever promise anything because I'm disappointed if I don't but I'm having fun doing the part that's usually not the fun part and that's a good sign hmm. that is very cool yeah, yeah. yeah I had no idea you were doing that yeah well you know something to do <laughs> something to do now that the kids are grown <laughs> that's Gen X yes know. gotta love our vanity projects Yes. This podcast started as a vanity project. Well, this podcast started during the pandemic when we had nothing else to do. Right, right, right. um, Yeah, no, that's very cool. Yeah, thanks. All right, my first pick. It kind of connects to my my last pick, sort of. I mentioned uh, Andy Warhol, not Warhol, which I probably said it wrong in the last episode. And if you know what song I'm talking about, you know why I just made that illusion. Uh, This is a song called Andy Warhol by David Bowie from 1971's Hunky Dory album. And the track begins with studio chatter where the producer shouts out Andy Warhol, take one, and David Bowie corrects him and says it's Warhol, like a hole. Show. Andy Warhol 
Jesus scream And him on my wall And he was Silver scream Can't tell them apart at all So like I said, last episode, I referenced uh, when, when talking about Deborah Harry and how she used to hang with, uh, with, with the artist, with the pop artist. So now I'm choosing a song actually about that artist. Uh, and Warhol was a very early artistic influence for David Bowie, which shouldn't surprise anybody. And I mentioned it. The track starts off with the studio chatter, um, but it's set over top of these really strange tones that are playing. So you hear these tones. It's very abstract. It's not just the studio chatter, but then they've taken the studio chatter and they... They play around with it and kind of cut and paste in different places. And, you know, it's, it's just it's weird David Bowie stuff, right? Yeah. But then after some laughter, after Bowie realizes, I think he realizes that they've been recording this whole interaction, uh, he begins to, to laugh and then it kicks right into the track. And I, I just, to me, this is one of the greatest guitar licks of, of David Bowie. He's just had some good you know, licks in his day. Uh, Mick Ronson is the one that plays this lick on an acoustic guitar. And it's not just me that thinks this is a cool lick. And this is something new that I learned this week. And I had to play it for my son because he's a big Metallica fan. And you're like, where am I going with this? Yeah, David I'm, Bowie, Andy Warhol. I, yeah, I know the song, so Metallica. I'm trying to figure out the connection here. Um, I might have mentioned it before, but when my son was learning how to play guitar, his guitar teacher was, was, was brilliant. Instead of having him, you know, play these crappy songs that, you know, Little Brown Jug or whatever, he told, took a song that he liked, Master of Puppets, and, and, and that song is epic. You know, it's like nine minutes long. Check out Pasture Muppets. Did you check out Pasture no, yeah, yeah. Muppets Oh, yeah, yet? we talked about Master Muppets. <laughs> and it, um, you know, there are different segments, different movements, right? And so about right after the six-minute mark, um, Kurt, Kurt Hammett and um, what's his name um, Cliff, Cliff Burton play this, this um, lick for about four measures and I guess I never heard it called this before just like you would quote somebody in text it's a, it's a musical quote or I would call it an homage or a nod to or a reference to um, and it was, it was clearly done it was intentionally done because Kurt Hammett is a huge uh, David Bowie fan so, yeah, if you get a chance, listen to it. Um, listen to this song here by, uh, by Bowie. Listen past the six-minute mark in Metallica, and it's really cool how they weave it into the song. Hmm. Uh, as for Mr. Warhol, <laughs> uh, did he dig the tune? So I mentioned Springsteen loved Eric Church's Springsteen. Well, in this case, not only did Bowie hear the song, David Bowie traveled to New York City. Warhol. Yeah. Bowie's the one performing the song. Yeah, yeah. What did I say? You said David Bowie heard the song. He yes, the I'm sorry. See, yeah. now I'm getting confused. <laughs> no, I, I, I was. Fi- I knew what you yeah. meant. Yeah. Well, because just, what we're doing yeah. is we're doing a tribute, and then some of the tributes are the artists themselves. Right. So well, I'm starting to get myself. Yeah. Confused. Well, it doesn't help that you Thank actually you. had a song yes. about David Bowie. Thank by, you for catching me yeah. on that. I appreciate that. Yes, um, Warhol actually heard the song, and Bowie uh, actually flew to New York to the factory uh, and performed it for Warhol and Warhol gave a very minimalist reaction and David Bowie wasn't sure whether or not he liked the song or hated the song but he was just being Andy Warhol right right and apparently um, a a friend told someone later that 
he just absolutely hated it. He was being polite. <laughs> he just absolutely hated the song. Um, so yeah, it, it, it's not one of the, the canon from from David Bowie that that everybody knows. But it's got a great lick, and uh, you know, it's weird at the beginning, and like everything else from Bowie, it's at least interesting. Yeah, no, it, it is very strange. Um, some of the sounds that that are just playing at at the song's beginning, it's, um, I, it's, I don't know. I, I love I love the conversation, you know, and but uh, yeah, it it always sounds to me like someone's playing with a rubber duck at the beginning of the song. <laughs> I, I I don't know how else to explain that. Like, well, I, I think a lot of people don't understand how avant-garde Bowie really was. Oh, absolutely. Because most people only know the hits. They know changes. They know Young Americans. They know Let's Dance. They know China Girl. And those songs were very radio-friendly. Yeah. What they don't know, with this, especially with his work with Brian Eno, is that a lot of the non-single tracks were extremely experimental and avant-garde. Mm-hmm. And this one, to me, is like kind of a hybrid between the two. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah. 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 But it's important, I think, for people to hear this stuff, to realize why David Bowie is as influential as he is. Because some people might listen to him and say, like, hey, yeah, he has a couple of really great hits. I just don't get why he is what he is. It's kind of like with Brian Wilson. A lot of people don't understand why Brian Wilson is as influential as he is until you really kind of dig into um, the catalog and, and understand what he brought True. to music. So, yep. um, Anyway, speaking of Andy Warhol, have you been to the Pittsburgh Museum? Oh, yep. yeah, a couple times. Yeah, it's good stuff. Oh, it's fantastic. I've been there twice. Yeah, I love... I loved, the one though where he literally just urinated on the canvas yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'm like that's art apparently is you know I, I just no it, it is I mean you want to talk about avant-garde that that museum is just crazy but it, you can get lost in there I mean it, there's so much I spent all day there by myself one time oh yeah it, it would be easy to do I've, I've been there a couple of times each each time for maybe two three hours but I've never had the opportunity to go and just Sit, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I love that there's uh, the um, Velvet Underground, if it's still there, floor. Oh, oh yeah, and, yeah. And they have the screens in, in, in a round, and you sit and watch all these different video clips from, from the Velvet Underground days um, while you listen to this music that's been cut for the for the video. It's yeah. really interesting. Well, and they, they have the theater, too, because I, yes. they're, they're always showing Warhol's films. Um, and you can participate in one, at least you were able to when I went, where they had a... Really? Yeah, you sat down at a little kiosk, and it was like a 15-second clip where you could just do whatever. Because one of his films, I, I think one of his films was like four hours worth, maybe more than that, of people sleeping. He would just record people just doing anything. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so what they're doing is they're, they're creating the, the, the longest ever film in that style. As, as everybody comes to the museum and visits and those that participate in that are added to this enormous film that's constantly being built you know i'm i'm vaguely it's been it's been a few years since i've been there last but i I vaguely remember doing something similar to what you're saying but i i don't remember it being specifically i don't remember the details about the longest film yeah and then when i stopped in the cafeteria for um for a snack they're showing that in the cafeteria now i'm not sure if they were showing if it was a live stream of people or if now parts of the other film you know that people have recorded now that you say that I, yeah, yeah now I, I remember it much better yeah, yeah in the cafeteria I do it's cool to see his early days where he was more of a conventional artist mm-hmm. uh, and then you know got into the pop art in fact there was a, uh, I don't know if it was Supreme Court or Appellate Court but there was a big decision that just came down because 
um, one of the subjects of his paint, one of his paintings. I don't remember who it was. You know how he did the silk screens of celebrities oh. like. It might have been Prince. I don't know. Um, but he did Marilyn Monroe, of course, was his oh, most yeah. famous one. Elvis, the camel suit can Yeah. But anyway, somebody that owned the copyright to the actual original image sued the Warhol Foundation, and, and they, they actually um, ruled in favor of the original artist, hmm. which is tricky, right? Because, you know, art has always had a kind of a fair use vibe to it where you could borrow... Remember, who was the guy, um, Robert, was it Keith Ferry? What's the last name? The artist. I can't remember his first name now. Why can't I? Ferry? Brian, yeah, Brian. not Brian Ferry. Um, um, visual artist. The one that did the Obama Hope Pope poster. Oh, oh, um, oh, damn. Yeah, I can't think of the first I, name. Yeah. Shepard, Shepard Ferry. Thank you. And that was going to bother me. <laughs> his famous Obama Hope, which is very much like a pop art mm-hmm. rendering. Um, I remember at the time the original AP photographer that took that. I, I think made some noise about how it was his, his original work. So I think it is an interesting discussion. There's a clear line where you take something commercial and just make money off of it. But then there's another line where you take something in pop culture and you incorporate it into another work, which I think is something we should protect. So uh, it's always going to be that debate. YouTube has that debate with what people upload on can and can't like clearly somebody uploading an entire movie would be a violation of copyright. Sure. But you know, I don't know if they still do, but there was a time when YouTube was kicking off people that were using songs in creative ways and remixing and, and, and such like that. And I think that should be protected. Well, yeah. I mean, as, as a literature teacher, you know, just the use of illusion sure, in right. itself. Mm-hmm. Um, now, most of that, of course, is public domain. Uh, you know, Shakespeare, the Bible, sure, right, right, the right. Bible mythology. But um, no, definitely. I mean, when you incorporate... It's tricky, like mm-hmm. you said. I mean, it's it certainly... I think all art lends itself to interpretation, and interpretation then begs for response. So I, I well, we we get tagged all the time. Spotify especially likes right. to come after. And we us. have to remind them it's fair use. It's, it's fair a use music commentary music. podcast. Yeah. We only play a portion of the song, and we discuss the song, and that is clearly um, supported by yeah. fair use. But yeah, we'll we'll get dinged again. Spotify dings us all the time. Well, they just they give us seventy two hours to confirm that we have the legal right to use the music. Of course, it is a defensible position. So if anyone wanted to ever sue us, which I doubt they would <laughs> sue an indie podcast from Canton, Ohio. But yeah, yeah. Uh, if they did and they sent us a cease and desist, then then we'd cease and desist. But yep. we're, we're we're doing it in the spirit of of criticism, which is is allowed. Yeah, and generally we pay reverence. So yes. You know. um, Okay, well, I'm, we don't want... Yep, I'll oh, finish. Okay. Well, for side B, my first track, um, I went with Sheryl Crow. And uh, this one came out in 2002 from the Come On, Come On album. The name of the track is Steve McQueen. Well, I went to bed in Memphis and I woke up in Hollywood. I got a quarter in my pocket and I'd call you if I could, but I don't know why. I gotta lie. I wanna rock and roll this party. I still wanna have some fun. I wanna leave you feeling breathless, show you how the West was won, but I gotta
Come on, come on with Sheryl Crow's fourth studio album, and to me, it's it's it remains one of her very best. I've I've always liked Sheryl Crow. I, she's I, I love how unconventional she can be. Um, when she gets quirky, that's when she's at her best. I'm not a fan of her ballads necessarily, but um, I remember there was the Tuesday Night Supper Club. Is that the name of the yeah. album? Um, I was headed with our buddy Tad, I believe, to your place in Bell Fountain. So that's how long ago this was. Oh wow! When that record came out, and we listened to it the whole way to your place. Yeah. And so I, I, I distinctly remember that. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, Tuesday Night Music Club. That, that, that of course, was her Music break. Club, not Supper Club. Music Club. Music Club, yeah. yeah. That, that was her breakthrough. Um, she actually, she, she started as a background vocalist for Michael Jackson. Right, right. Um, but yeah, Tuesday Night Music Club was her breakthrough. And Come On, Come On, you know, to me, it is almost like the very next day. Uh, because the two albums, there, there are two albums in between uh, Tuesday Night Music Club and Come On, Come On. But for me, it almost feels like this Come On, Come On is the, the successor. It's the follow-up. Because it's very similar in structure, very similar in okay, sound. Yeah. Uh, officially, Come On, Come On was the follow-up to 1998's very moody and stripped-down Globe sessions. Which one had Soak Up the Sun? Uh, come On, Come On. Okay. Yeah. Um but yeah, I, you know, the the truth is, yeah, come on, come on. I mean, it's such a loose, relaxed approach, and it, it it's just irresistible, upbeat tunes. You know, to me, it's the rightful successor to her debut. Um, except this time, this time, Cheryl is throwing a beach party, I and mean, that that's really kind of the the groove that I get right. from "Come On, Come On," um, which soak up the sun on the same it, record. So, exactly. Yeah. yeah, I mean, from the sun dappled covered shots to the jangling summery pop. Uh, inside the grooves. I mean, Come On, Come On is basically a quintessential summer album. And it is jangle pop. I mean, it's... That, yeah, that's, and that's, even the cover, isn't it kind of a washed out... Yeah, washed out. She's playing the guitar. It's, yeah, 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 very much. Um, yeah, Come On, Come On. Um, it's an album about cars, fun, love, and road trips. Like, like, a, ca- like a California record. Exactly. It feels like a California record. Oh, very record. much, yeah. yeah. Uh, it really is. It's an album designed to, to kind of provide the soundtrack for an entire season of cruises to the lake, late night parties on the deck, and hot afternoons frolicking in the sunshine. So, uh, Come On, Come On proved that all Cheryl wanted to do was still have some fun again, <laughs> you know? Um, and in keeping with that with that motive, Crow keeps these tracks on, on this album very bright, fun, and playful. The opener, Steve McQueen, that's the song that I've selected, it grafts a, a twangy guitar lick onto a loping hip-hop beat and, and kind of borrows a well-placed woo-hoo that comes from another 70s icon named Steve, that would be Miller, um, to produce a, a, just a really funky, uh, alluring roots pop gem. It's freewheeling, it's jubilant. Uh, the tone sets the mood for, for to, to me, for any sunny, strummy tracks that, that follow. Um, I don't have much more to say. I mean, I, Steve McQueen, of course, he was... Um, in the late 60s, going into the 70s, he was the very definition of cool. He was the James Dean after Dean died, you know. Um, and here, I mean, she 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 pays reverence to um, really two of his films. Um, the first is The Italian Job, and then you have uh, It's a Bullet. Is that, am I getting that right? Yeah, I think so. I think yeah. it's Bullet, yeah. Um, and she talks about the fast cars. It's it's just it's just a fun song. Um I don't really have much more to say. I think I really couldn't find anything in my research about it. It's just, I mean, it's very straightforward. It's just, you know, an allusion to 
to McQueen and, and you know, summer fun. Is she so, in the Rock Hall? Or? She, yeah, she just gotten, she was chosen as an inductee for this year. Okay, okay. She, yeah, she, um, first, and she got inducted, she will be inducted in, on the first year of her nomination. So, um, when do they do it? Like, uh, October, November. She, right. She'll be inducted this very year. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and she, it's, it's very much deserved. I mean, she's, um, I, I think she's about as close to, to like 60s surf. Yeah. No, she definitely belongs in there. Yeah. 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 So. All right. Cool. Well, I, my last discussion, I mentioned Brian Wilson's. Now I'm going to talk about a song called Brian Wilson. Ah, yes. And it is by Bare Naked Ladies. Drove downtown in the rain. 9.30 on a Tuesday night. Just to check out the late night record shop. Call it impulsive, call it compulsive, call it insane. But when I'm surrounded, I just can't stop. It's a matter of instinct, it's a matter of conditioning, a matter of fact. You can call me Pavla Dog. Ring a bell and I'll salivate. How'd you like that? Dr. Landy, tell me you're not just a pedagogue Cause right now I'm lying in bed Just like Brian Wilson did Well I I'm lying in bed just like Brian Wilson did So I'm The most popular version of the song is the live version. Live version. That actually became popular after several albums and after Bare Naked Ladies had had a few hits. Uh, Of course, I didn't pick that because we don't usually choose live. Although I probably, I might have been able to go to the greatest hits. Yeah, I was going to say it fades in and out on the greatest hits package. So we can can discuss which version I guess we want to put on there. I originally selected just the, the album version from Gordon. But yeah, you're right, at the greatest hits fades in and fades out mm-hmm. then that works for a mixtape as well yeah because I've, I've done that a few times I've gone to the greatest hits yeah. for that purpose so yeah good idea um, <clears throat> it was written by 20 year old Stephen Page so one of his earlier compositions wrote it in his basement as a tribute to Brian Wilson who's of course the heart of the Beach Boys and all around musical genius and you know if, if you know anything about Brian Wilson's story he kind of had a freak out in the late 60s when he was trying to basically win the war with the Beatles. Um, the Beatles had released, you know, Revolver and then uh, Beach Boys come out with uh, with Pet Sounds and then the Beatles come out with Sgt. Pepper. And then you came up with Smiley Smile, which was the album that Brian Wilson was working on when he kind of cracked. Yeah. And, and a lot of most of the songs from that 
record ended up uh, appearing in other places over the next 10 years of Beach Boys records, but never together, never the same arrangement. And it wasn't until the box set came out by the Beach Boys where they actually released the original tracks that were completed for the record. And then um, Brian Wilson started actually touring about 10, 15 years ago, and mm-hmm. still does, yeah. and recording new music. And he re-recorded with a, with a huge band, Smile, 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 yeah. which would be the, um, the actual album, Smiley Smile is a song. But um, yeah, yeah, he, um, you know, it, it, I'd be here forever talking about his contribution to rock, so we'll just, you'll have to take my word for it if you don't believe me. <laughs> um, you can write a dissertation, you know. <laughs> right, right. Uh, the, the song references the years that Brian was in the throes of mental illness. So that's that's after the Smile record kind of didn't work out. And that's also when he kind of stepped back with creative control of the group and other members of the band stepped forward and did a lot more writing and, and so forth. And he also ate heavily, gained an enormous amount of weight, and rarely got dressed. He wore a robe and basically stayed in bed for, for, for a long time. Um, so yeah, this was written as, in fact, I think they even mentioned Smiley Smile in the lyrics here. Um, it's a tribute to, to Wilson. It's meant as a tribute. Not, it's not making fun of uh, the mental um, episode that, that he went through during that time. Now, here's another question. Did Brian Wilson actually hear this song, and what did he think of it? What do you think? Uh, I, I, I've actually heard Brian Wilson perform it live on stage himself. There so you go. I, my guess is he's a yes. huge fan. Yes. Did he play it when we were we saw him live? Yeah. 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 Really? In Pittsburgh, yeah. I totally forgot that then. Mm-hmm. Yes, Brian Wilson loved the song. Uh, in fact, he did record a live a cappella version that he included on one of his live albums. So I'm going to have to go back and listen to that. Um, at one point, the members of Bare Naked Ladies got to meet Brian in the studio. Uh, they played some new stuff for him, uh, and then he played his cover version of Brian Wilson for them in the studio. And this is so Brian Wilson here. Afterwards, he asked the band, was it cool? <laughs> because if there's one thing about Brian Wilson, as much of a genius as he is, he's a pretty big square. Oh, very much, yeah. Uh, and he continues to like have this mindset of like 1964, 1965. Uh, so just for him to ask the band if his version was cool, <laughs> it's just so awkward. I love it. And, and then as he was leaving, his advice to the band was, don't eat too much. <laughs> that is great. So oh, yes, that's hilarious. Yes, he liked it. He liked it. So so far, it's Andy Warhol uh, is the only one that didn't like his tribute song that we know of. Mm. Don't eat too much. But I, I mean, I, I like Bare Naked Ladies. Um, I do. I got to see him live last summer, which was cool. Um, the song has a great melody. It's oh. smart lyrics. Oh yeah, I mean, it's fun. It's infectious. It's. Um, uh, what's not to love right you know right. it's just great tune and it was written in a time before I knew a lot of the Brian Wilson story too I mean I, I knew all the cliches of course but um, now going back and listening to this song after having read several biographies uh, about the man and, and a lot of Beach Boys books that uh, he, he, Stephen Page knew his stuff yep all right, that's all I have alright well my next selection is uh, a tribute to Betty Davis who, of course, was an actress known for playing strong, independent women. Her movies included, among others, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, All About Eve. She was famous for her New England accent and, of course, her eyes. Betty Davis' eyes. Uh, Kim Carnes, this hit number one in 1981. It's from the Mistaken Identity album. ¶¶ 
What you may not know, Betty Davis Eyes was originally recorded in a 1920s jazz style by Jackie DeShannon on her 1975 album, New Arrangement. Hmm. Uh, DeShannon wrote the song with the songwriter Donna Weiss, and according to DeShannon, she got the idea after watching the 1942 Betty Davis movie, Now Voyager. She and Weiss were writing quite a bit at the time. Uh, They were collaborating often, and they both liked black and white movies. So Weiss had written many pages, and DeShannon was fooling around with the melody, and the two of them pieced together Betty Davis' eyes. So the demo was a much more rock and roll feel, and that's what DeShannon thought she was going to record, but her producer had another concept. According to DeShannon, the jazz interpretation turned out okay. She said she doesn't dislike it, but it was not her concept. Now, for my own part because I had never heard to Shannon's version, but I, I listened to it, um, you know, preparing for this episode. Um, for my own part, I think to Shannon mislabels her recording. I get, I get the swing feel, but to me, I think her version is more country mm. than jazz. Interesting. So yeah, we'll, we'll include it on the mentioned songs list. So our yeah, listeners yeah, I like can to hear that. Themselves. But either way, I'm not a fan of the original recording. I, I mm. not, not a fan. Um, which is fine because DeShannon was not a fan either. <laughs> so years later, though, that demo, the original rock and roll demo, still existed. And Weiss gave that original demo to Kim Carnes. Carnes, along with her band and producer of Val Garay, they, they came up with the hit arrangement for the song. And Carnes' version was much closer to the original demo than DeShannon, that, that DeShannon had wanted to record. Um, Betty Davis Eyes, it was a huge, huge hit in the U.S. It parked at the number one spot on Billboard for nine weeks. It was the number one song of that year. Uh, number two. Number two. It was number one for nine weeks. It was not, however, was the physical number one? Physical was number oh, one okay. for ten weeks. Okay. Beat okay. it by a week, yeah. Physical was the number one song of 81, right. and Betty Davis Eyes was the second. Because yeah. I remember as a kid listening to the Casey Kasem year-end countdown. Oh, yeah. And I remember both of those songs were at the top of the list, but yep. I just had the order mixed up. Yeah, Physical came out first. Um, I, was in, I was in my grandfather's barn. Why do we remember things like that? I, I, I don't know, but it's, I don't know. It, it, it <laughs> fascinates me when we do. I, yeah. Um, yeah, the, the song, um, yeah, it was, it, it was only behind Olivia Newton-John's Physical in terms of uh, the, the, the biggest sales for the year. It, it won the 1981 Grammy for Record of the Year, and in America... Still to this day, Betty Davis' Eyes is the third best-selling single of the 80s after Olivia Newton-John's Physical 
and the Diana Ross Lionel Richie duet, Endless Love. Interesting. Three hmm. best-selling singles of the 80s still today. And that's including sale, you know, ongoing sales. Um, which I would have thought Journey would have surpassed them after... Don't Stop Believing? Yeah, I, but no. And, and maybe it doesn't include downloads. It may not include downloads because yeah, that was the most downloaded song of all time. Yeah, exactly. So this must just be actual record sales, the, the information that I found. I'm, I'm not sure. But yeah, after the song became a hit single, Betty Davis... What do you think she thought of the song? I think she loved it. Yeah. Yeah, she did. She actually wrote letters to Kim Carnes and to um, the, the um, to Weiss, um, to, uh, to Shannon, everyone involved, as well as every one of uh, Kim Carnes' bandmates and the producer, wrote letters to all of them, saying that she was a huge fan of the song and thanking them for making her, quote, a part of modern history. Uh, one of the reasons the legendary actress loved the song so much is that her granddaughter thought that her grandmother was, as Brian Wilson would say, cool. cool. <laughs> because she had a hit song written about her. So, yeah. Now, here's what I found funny, though. Because I had never made this association, but I was going through and over and over and over again as I was doing research. Do you know who is so often miscredited for singing this song? Um, there, there are Stevie Nicks. No, not Stevie. No, there. I'm thinking of other raspy voices yeah, in pop music. There are a lot of listeners, a lot of listeners, who basically because of Karn's raspy voice, um, that they weren't from the, still today. If they're not familiar with Kim Carnes, a lot Chapman? of people think it's Rod Stewart singing the song Rod Stewart Rod's, that's hilarious I, I kid you not I found it on site after site after site and it was just I, I kept seeing this I'm like she sounds nothing like I, I get the raspiness right but yeah I, time and time uh, again okay yeah yeah. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of people who miscredit that Rod reminds Stewart. me of the do you watch The Office um, but I Yes and no. I mean, I love The Office. I have still yet to sit down and binge watch from start okay. to finish. Okay, there's so many great throwaway lines. And there's one where um, one of the employees was asked by Michael Scott to make a tape of Bruce Springsteen music. Huh. He, he said, so I made a tape based on his list, two of which were by You Lose in the News and one which was by Tracy Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. That's great. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I was just, I found that hilarious, though. There are so many people who credit Rod Stewart as the singer for Betty Davis Eyes. So Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I love that song. I do. And um spoiler alert, and maybe next episode I might or the episode after um after. Yeah. After. After. After be Yeah, we'll we'll talk about the next episode when we're Yes. At the end of this one. So Well, let me ask you this Alan. sometimes a song can just be a great rock and roll song. Right? Can it? Absolutely. It doesn't have to be by a great band, legendary band. It doesn't have to be great lyrically. It doesn't have to be complex uh, musically. It can just be a rock and roll tune. That's this next tune. Um, are you familiar with the Bottle Rockets? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. Uh, I mentioned earlier, uh, last time, I, I, I love alt country because it was country music, but kind of mixed with a little alternative and rock mm -hmm. and roll and a little less twangy my pickup truck type stuff right sure yeah a lot of it more socially conscious and in this case the bottle rockets were very in fact they're compared a lot to woody guthrie in their style and their social activism um and of course there are other bands like um they've been compared neil young old 97s uncle tupelo a lot of really great alt country um artists in the late 90s 
this song is just a fun rock and roll tribute to Nancy Sinatra, and that is the name of it, Nancy Sinatra, from the Bottle Rockets 1999 album, Brand New Year. It's just, I mean, it basically, it's like, like kind of an all-out obsession. Um, it the, really, it the, really is. The, yeah. the narrator of the song is just obsessed with Nancy Sinatra. And that's about as deep as the lyrics go. But man, this song rocks. Uh, in fact, I wouldn't even, even say this is alt-country. I mean, I suppose you could say it, but to me, it's just a, a great rock and roll song. But it doesn't feel a little stale like classic rock sometimes can feel. It's just a fresh. Um, I suppose if I were to roadhouse somewhere, you know, in some small town, I wouldn't be surprised to see a small band play something like this. Yeah. 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 How, how does it begin? Because they, they. Oh, it's, uh, is it. Uh, here we go, girls. Here we go, girls. Or, yeah, here we go. Yeah. Which is a callback to two so, things. Well, it's definitely these boots are made for walking. Definitely these boots are made for walking. But also, I hear the um, Shania Twain. Oh, yeah, 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 Where she goes, let's go, girls, before yeah. it don't impress me much. And, which, of course, the band are, are male. So it, it's it's kind of a funny way. Oh, yeah. To, but yeah, I, it's definitely a direct it, reference to yeah. these boots are made but for it, walking. But it's such a great throwaway line there at the beginning because it's, it's right. <laughs> reference. And, you know, come on. And, and he says it in such a husky. <laughs> right. Let's you know, go, girls. Twangy. Yeah, it's just <laughs> right. it's, it's fantastic. Right. But so. if you haven't listened to Bottle Rockets or Uncle Tupelo or Old 97s, um, do yourself a favor. Ryan Adams and the Cardinals. There's just a really uh, – Wilco, of course. Um Yola Tango, I think I'll put in there with that as well. Just a lot of really good uh, 90s, 2000s bands that really, I think, the best example of, of rock and roll for that time. Hmm. Because country was, was very pop, commercial-oriented. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, and, still, still is. And, 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 of course, you had, that was post-Nirvana, so you had a lot of punk pop bands or grunge bands or whatever. But it's just, it's just kind of preserving the old rock and roll feel of like the 60s and, and 70s these bands kept that spirit alive in yeah. a really authentic sense no I, I completely agree alright that's all alright well we are still on country ah. uh, my next selection I said that I, I I don't know I don't know if I said it at the end of last week's episode or if I said it at the beginning of this week's episode but I, I kind of play around here with my next few selections um, that they're all name drops I mean I'm following you know, following the the theme of our mixtape, but I I started to imagine not imagine I started to to think about what a name drop is and how it's used in in slightly different ways, because this next selection, okay, very different. All of our song selections name drop celebrities, 
right? Mm-hmm. But this is the only one, the only song where the celebrity name dropped answers. Oh, okay. So let's see if you, any idea? No. No, okay. Well, we'll keep going. It was written by Nashville songwriters Jim Moose Brown and Don Rollins, and it was basically, um, Brown is a, is a session keyboard player. Oh, okay. oh, this is five o'clock somewhere. Yes. session keyboard player who also wrote uh, Daryl Worley's If Something Should Happen. Rollins is a sax player who has also written for Ricky Skaggs and Randy Travis. This song spent eight weeks at number one on the country charts. It won the 2003 Grammy for Best Country Song and after a 40-year career, it was the first number one song on the country chart for Jimmy Buffett. The song is It's Five O'Clock Somewhere. Yeah. Um, what would Jimmy Buffett say? And then he chimes yeah. right in. So, yeah. in the Well, basically, according to Don Rollins, his songwriting partner, Moose, was actually playing piano on a record for a guy named Colt Prather, okay, who was a new artist who had signed to Sony at the time. And the label wanted a Jimmy Buffett vibe song for Prather's debut album. So Rollins stumbled upon the colloquial phrase, it's five o'clock somewhere, and it just clicked. He thought the idea would do really well in a Buffett-like setting. He talked to Moose, who said yes. He had always heard the phrase, but he had never heard it used in a song. So they wrote it. And apparently, I wish I could get my hands on the demo. I would kill to hear the demo. Because apparently, it was definitely, this was Margaritaville, okay, as, as written. The songwriters agreed what the story would be. It, it was an unhappy employee who decides to have a, a few at lunch and then decides to stay there. And once the framework was in place, the lyrics came easy, okay? The what would Jimmy Buffett do line in the bridge was there from the beginning. It was Rollins being sarcastic, poking a little fun at the what would Jesus do bumper stickers. Oh, interesting. Okay, yeah, okay? yeah. And it happened to be exactly the right thing for that situation. And, and that was the, the way they brought Buffett into the song. Buffett wasn't supposed to be in this song, okay? It turned out to be the thing that, you know, that what would Jimmy Buffett do line was just supposed to bring the song together. Sure. So it was earmarked for country recording artist Colt Prather, as I said, but the singer passed on it immediately. And a couple of other people passed on it too. And then the songwriters got the call that it was on hold for Alan Jackson. And that made no sense. It was very strange because the demo was... Apparently, an island vibe. It was all acoustic guitars and steel drums. Hmm. Okay? Very much Buffett. And Alan Jackson sounds nothing. I mean, he's not 
you know, he's not Zach Brown. <laughs> Alan Jackson is real. He had Chattahoochee, but that's about well, it. Yeah, but I mean, he's he's legitimate. I mean, he's there's no island right. vibe to, to Alan Jackson. So they they were very confused by by Jackson putting it on hold. Um, but they then learned that Jackson wanted to do a duet with Buffett, and it all made sense. That's cool. Okay. So yeah, it's really unfortunate because I would I would love to hear the island vibe of a song written in tribute to Buffett, not featuring Buffett. You know, just st- all steel drums, and but that's not the song we got because it's five. I, I love it's five. I'm a huge Buffett fan. I'm you know unabashedly a a parrothead. But yeah, the song that we know is not the song that was intended at all. Um, but again, what would Jimmy Buffett do? What other song can you think of where a celebrity name dropped? Because it is a duet, but Buffett doesn't come in until mid-song, right. and not until you know he's name dropped. Right. It, it's it's a totally that's true. You know, it's, it's a very, very unique, very unique song. So I thought, let's do this. I can't think of any other song where the celebrity name dropped answers. So it's five o'clock somewhere. Made my final cut. It's it's there on the list, and it's a fun song. Yeah, yeah. You know, who doesn't? like a hurricane um and hopefully for younger listeners that opened up a whole new world for them yeah i mean buffett's always going to be a cult thing right but um it was nice that he got some commercial success for the first time in probably 30 plus years yeah i mean he i don't think he hit the charts after more i mean the billboard i don't think he's hit the Billboard charts since Margaritaville. Well, yeah, Margaritaville, I think Come Monday might have been come, a hit. Come Monday was... Changes in Latitudes might have been a hit. Maybe, yeah. But they were minor yeah. hits. Come Monday, I think, was top 20. And then Margaritaville, of course, was... It It, it charted. I think it went top 10. And then... Right. You know, beyond that, he's just had a following much like the dead uh, where, you know, people were, you know, faithfully buy album after album, but he's never gotten the accolades or, you know, the critical... He's not, he's not a critical darling by any means. So, but what a smart businessman. He's been very sick. He's not. He's. Oh really? Yeah. He's. He is not. He's not uh, touring this summer. No, this summer, no. He's taking the summer off. He's been in and out of the hospital. Um, he, he intends to get back to touring uh, soon. But uh, he's been very vague on what uh, what problems he's having. Hmm. But um, yeah, there's no tour because I I went. Uh, Gail and I have went to Cincinnati now, I'd say every year for the past seven or eight years. We've went down to Riverbend to see him. I've even seen him at Blossom a couple of times. And of course, we used to go Buckeye Lake, mm-hmm. you know, back in the day. But yeah, there's no, no concerts. The first time he's taken the summer off, well, not counting COVID. And it might be the first time he's ever taken the summer off. So I don't know what's going on with his health, but... He says he'll be back. Yeah, you know, I, you know, you don't like to think about that, but you wonder which of the uncles will be the first to go. I mean, like Springsteen is in the greatest shape. Although, did you see not too long ago he tripped on stage? Yeah. Um, and it was simply he didn't lift his right foot enough, and he handled it gracefully because there's nobody in better shape oh. at 73 or 74. Oh, he's still than Bruce Springsteen. He's still so. I mean, when he performs on stage, I mean, it is a cardio workout. <laughs> so the irony so, would be if he went first because he is so healthy. I'm not sure that Billy Joel has much of a liver left. And Buffett, ironically, is not a big partier. Right. And has stayed much healthier. But now you say he's having issues, so we'll see. Yeah. Well, they're all 80-something, so. 70s. 70s. Are they? I mean, I know Joel and, and Springsteen were both born in like yeah. 1950, around no, 1950. 40, well, yeah. I think it's 49 was Joel. I'm not yeah. sure. Buffett, Buffett, I think, is 
He might be older. He might be older. I'm not, I'm not sure. Yeah. Not sure. But. No, 80s, you're getting into like, like Harrison Ford is like 82 or something. Right. 80s, you'd be talking McCartney and Jagger and. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Because like. 10, like, 10 years Like, like Lennon now. was, Lennon was born in 40. So he would have been 83. That's yeah. crazy. Oh, man. Who do you think? Here's my question. Who's going to be the last Beatle standing? Mm, I don't know. I, Paul, I, they both look like they're in decent yeah, shape, yeah. But, but I don't know. I, for whatever reason, I just had this feeling that Ringo's going to outlive Paul. I could be wrong. Could be wrong. It's not a contest. <laughs> but, it's going to be sad days when oh, all these guys start dropping. Yeah, I mean, it's well, I, I can't imagine a world without a beetle. So right. it's gonna it's gonna hurt. So. All right. Well, my next song is a rarity. In fact, this may be the most obscure song I've ever selected for a mixtape on this show. (laughs) It appears on the classic album, Yoshimi Battles the Pink Robots. Um, It's actually, I shouldn't say it it appears on that album. It was during those sessions or around those sessions. And then after this album, they released an EP of some covers and a couple originals. And this one found its way onto that EP. The uh, EP was called uh, Flight, Flight Test. And the song is called Thank You, Jack White, for the Fiber Optic Jesus That You Gave Me. Okay, now I by have... By the Flaming Lips. I have to ask. Uh, you're probably <laughs> going to go over this. But is this a true story? Yes. Okay, so Jack White literally handed him behind stage... Yes. ...a fiber optic Jesus. Yes. Let me tell you a story about a very special gift I received from a, from a man that I didn't know very well. But he brightened up the night and made it one of the great shining moments of our long tour. It goes like this. Backstage in Detroit and the room is full of smoke and apprehension. As the warm-up and the band for Beck Hansen In walks Jack says, how'd you do? And then he handed me this wonderful statue And I said, thank you, Jack White For the fiber-optic Jesus that you gave me I probably just stole your thunder because I'm sure. No, that it's was, fine. I, I just I, I've been listening to this song since you, you since we <laughs> you know we share we share what tracks we're gonna bring, and I'm just listening to this song fascinated, wondering because Jack White is so, I mean he's right, so right, out of there. Right, you know, right. I'm like, is this true? It had to have been, but I, I wasn't sure. Yes, yeah, no. They just released a 20th anniversary edition of Ishimi Battles the Pink Robots, and then this is added to that. You know, a lot of times they'll add demos or other songs from from the recording session so um but really it's from flight test as far as the ep goes so yes uh despite its obscurity i love this song for its direct simplicity coin um wayne coin who's the the front man for the flaming lips straightforward straightforward tells us what happened to him in 2002 when he was on tour with beck and so the story goes the Flaming Lips were the opening band for Beck on this tour. But not only were they the opening band, they were also the backing band for Beck 
which, hmm. which happens from time to time. Yeah, yeah it, it happens does. with the Indigo Girls. I know they'll, their opening act will then back them up. So it was already kind of a disastrous tour because they had not only had to rehearse their songs for their 45-minute set, but then they had to learn all these new songs for an hour and a half set for Beck. So it was already kind of crazy, and then they had to move their equipment between, um, you know, between the two shows and make adjustments. So they were just kind of having it. They were exhausted. And they were playing in Detroit. And that's where Jack White is from, where Jack right. and Meg White are from. And after the show, Jack White stops backstage. Now, Wayne Cohen is very humble in this sense where he says he's pretty convinced that Jack White was there to see Beck. But it was a very, very small green room where they were playing, so they're all kind of together. And so before seeing Beck, Jack White sees Wayne Cohen and says, hey, hi, cool, nice to meet you. Here, do you want this? And he hands him this fiber optic. Jesus. It's hilarious. You plug in. I don't know if you looked online to see, but there are pictures of this thing. No, I, I didn't look online. Um, it's, it's, it's very kitschy, and, but there's like these fiber optic threads that come out. I'm just trying light to figure up. out why he had it with him. Well, Wayne's not sure. Not, he's not sure if he was being ironic or if it's something that he had had in his van and just grabbed at the last minute or something he, someone gave him and he felt awkward not knowing what to say to Wayne, so he just handed this to him. He has no idea why he did. Yeah, because that that's the part that I just couldn't, I could not fathom who just carries a fiber optic Jesus around with them. You know, it's like, the story is... It's just such a cool, random it's, thing. It's hilarious. But Coyne said that when he received that, it changed everything for him on the tour. That's when he decided, you know what? We need to just be having fun. We're, we're all stressed out about everything being perfect. And, and he said that's when the tour really changed. He was just so... I don't know what flabbergasted to receive this, or maybe he was laughing uh, at, at its quirkiness. But uh, he, So after the tour, Kwon goes home and plugs in his mantelpiece, and it lights up his, li- his living room, and you can see it out the front window of his house. And about a year later, it stops working. And he goes to it and figures, oh, well, you know, maybe something burned out. And then he read a little label on the bottom that said, do not keep him plugged in for more than eight hours at a time. He'd <laughs> <laughs> been plugged in for a year. <laughs> it lasts an entire year. Anyway, so a lot of times the Flaming Lips would like, they like to go into the studio and just turn on the tape and, and, and write spontaneous things. Oh, yeah. And this was a product of that. Uh, they were just sitting around and he said, hey, uh, here's a song and started playing this riff and thought, you know, he needed lyrics. A lot of times artists will make up lyrics that don't, you know, end up being the actual lyrics of the song. They're just looking for placeholders. And so he just starts telling the story um, to, to the melody he's writing and they finished the take and they're like, yeah, that, that's good. <laughs> let's just keep it. Let's just keep it like that. Uh-huh. So I don't know. I wasn't able to, to find out if Jack White heard the song or what he thought of it, but uh yeah, oh, it's so funny. <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I roared. He laughing. said it was really awkward. He said Beck, Beck too was kind of like acting cool, like he was too cool to be there, and so it was just weird because you have these three great acts, these three legendary acts, and they're all in the same room and they don't know how to talk to each other because mm. <laughs> Jack White's fanboying out on on Beck. Beck doesn't know how much he should open up to Jack White because he's trying to play it cool. And here the flaming lips are just hanging around with their plastic Jesus. <laughs> it's a great story. Oh, so um, as man. a song, it's you know, great it's, story. It's, it's not. It's never going to go down on, on one of the great um, flaming lips 
you know, uh, no, anthologies. No. But uh, you got to love an obscure song of that once in a while, especially one that's so blatantly honest about yeah. <laughs> an event that happened. Oh, it's crazy. All right. Well, my next uh, my next selection is a song that was written in tribute to late comedian Andy Kaufman. Uh, this one is by R.E.M. It is Man on the Moon. It came out in 1992. It can be found on Automatic for the People. Um as well as the soundtrack. Yeah, I know they use it in the soundtrack. Man on the Moon, yeah. Right. teenager, R.E.M. lead singer Michael Stipe saw Kaufman on Saturday Night Live and has since that time cited Kaufman as a huge influence. Um, the song was, the song title was used as the title for the 1999 movie about Andy Kaufman starring Jim Carrey and R.E.M. did the soundtrack which included this song. So yeah, you can find it on both, both albums. Uh, Stipe, I guess, really struggled to find the right words. It was kind of against the clock because the album was due soon. And instead of working through it in the studio, the band took a few days off, during which Stipe listened to the track on cassette in his rental car until he found inspiration. I guess he just spent a day in his rental car just playing it on, on the cassette deck. So when the band reconvened, apparently Stipe walked into the studio, sang Man on the Moon one time, and walked out. Yeah, yeah. He's known to do that. Yeah. And fellow REM band members, all of them were just stunned because, you know, the last they had heard, he had nothing. And this turned out to be such an incredible, incredible tune. Kaufman was known for his Elvis impersonations, which he once performed on Saturday Night Live, actually. Stipe does one of his own on the line, Hey, baby, are we losing touch? Which is kind of fun. Um... And I loved this. I had never heard this before. On an episode of the British TV show Top of the Pops, Michael Stipe claimed that when he was writing this song, he actually wrote it as a tribute to Kurt Cobain as well. Hmm. Did you know that? No. It was a tribute to I Kurt... I know Let Me In was a tribute. Yeah. He played her uh, guitar yeah. on that track. It, it was a tribute to Kurt Cobain's lyrics and writing, and the repeated, 
yeah, 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 yes, at the end of nearly every line of this song was actually his attempt to put more yes in a song than Cobain did. <laughs> Stipe claimed that Cobain was the master at making yeah, yeahs fit, and he wanted to outdo him. That's great. So I, I'd never heard that before. Um, after R.E.M. caught it quits in 2011, uh, Michael Stipe said that this would be the song he would most miss performing, particularly, uh, he said, watching the effect of that opening bass line mm, yeah. on, on a sea of people at the end of a show. Um, he said also that it was just an easy song to sing. He said it's it's hard to sing a bad note in mm. this one. And Kaufman is not the only name dropped in this song. Mott the Hoople, wrestler Fred Blassie, Elvis Presley, Moses, Sir Isaac Newton, and Charles Darwin also make an appearance. So, yeah, I just, I, I love this. I've always loved this song. I love the movie. I love Andy Kaufman, love R.E.M. I just, I'm not, I'm not the R.E.M. fan. You are specifically, but, um, yeah, I just thought, let's do it. If you haven't read, and the name escapes me of the book because I read it a long time ago before the movie came out, uh, but uh, Bob Zamuda was his partner in crime, so to speak, in mm. comedy. Um, a lot of the comedy that Andy Kaufman performed, very few people got to see. Right. He had his stage act, and of course he appeared in Taxi and Saturday Night Live and, and, and other places, but he, in talk shows like Letterman, but he would... Um, they would just pull these elaborate pranks on people and it was almost like performance art and they would just do it one time and it was completely for the entertainment of the two of them. And one of his characters, one of Andy Kaufman's characters was, was Tony Clifton. Hmm. We dressed up in a leisure suit, jacket, and he was really insulting. He was just awful, awful, awful. Yeah, just insult women, insult everybody. Everybody hated him. And Andy sometimes would just show up on the set of Taxi as Tony Clifton and say that Andy wasn't coming to work today and he would just piss everybody off on the set. Just Andy liked to make people mad. Yeah, I've heard that. And then there were times when uh, Bob Zamuda would dress up as Tony Clifton, so Tony Clifton could appear at the same time with Andy to try to dispel that he was actually Tony Clifton, because Tony Clifton was a pretty good disguise and everyone knew it was Andy, and then he tried to, so yeah. The book is incredible. The book goes through all these hijinks that nobody ever knew about until um, Zamuda ends up publishing these stories that hmm. book then becomes the basis for the movie man, man on, on the, the moon. moon yeah right yeah i've never read the book i, I didn't know it, the, it's a it's a fun read it really is i'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to yeah. add it to my reading list for this summer just crazy crazy stuff that they yeah. pull. well and kaufman i mean his humor was so it was unlike anybody uh, any other comedian i can, I can even I, the fact that he could just lip sync you know to Mighty Mouse, the Mighty Mouse theme, and get uh, an audience to roar with laughter for 30 minutes at doing... I, he, I don't know. He was just a master at, at imp improvisation. Just Oh, yeah. Well, you know. and, and he wasn't afraid to piss off his audience. Yeah, oh, that's true. Yeah. One time he was at a college doing a stand-up, and everyone just kept shouting. Um, they wanted Latka, 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 his character from, uh, from Taxi. And so he just pulled out a copy of The Great Gatsby and started reading it. And after about 15 minutes, people realized he was just going to sit there and read The Great Gatsby, which he did for another hour <laughs> until everybody left. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, it's crazy. Um, Andy, oh, what's the name of it? Uh, it's called, I'm looking up the book right now. Andy Kaufman Revealed Best Friend Tells All. I don't remember that being the, but the name. That is the name by 
by Bob Zamuda. So Andy hmm. Kaufman revealed best friend tells all. And so the, a lot of the tricks that they did, people didn't know exactly who was involved or how much of a setup it was. A lot of things they thought were just spontaneous were complete setups between the two of them, uh, and others weren't. So it's huh. just a lot of fun. That is cool. All right. Um, well, we're back on the crossover thing here in terms of um, – we talked about Andy Warhol. We talked about David Bowie singing about Andy Warhol. And now here's a song about David Bowie. This is getting confusing. So if I miss the names up, please stop me again like you did last time. Well, it's also performed by a, a Willy Wonka character. Yes, <laughs> Veruca Salt, yes. 1997, from their second album, Eight Arms to Hold You. Remember Seether. Everyone remembers Seether. That was their big hit in the mm-hmm. 90s. I think it was in 94, 95. I think it was 94 because I think we played it at WFAL. That was kind of their big... They yeah. played it on SNL. And, Pretty sure, yeah. But Frucasol was, was an all-female um, band, kind of, you know, grungy pop band. And, you know, I, I never got into them at the time. I don't know why, because I love all-female bands. The Donnas, around the same time, maybe a little bit later were one of my favorite bands at the time. I just love all-girl punk bands, you know? Oh, it's yeah. just a lot of fun. And so now, when I went back for this, in preparation for the show, um, I think I'm going to have to spend some time with Ruka Salt. Um, now, they did have a big split after their second album where one of the two main songwriters um, and, and singers ended up leaving, and there's a lot of drama I won't get into now about that, but uh, especially these first two records, I want to go back and revisit them. But anyway, we... Um, Veruca Salt came in the scene in 94 uh, with their first record, which I mentioned. Um, Nina Gordon is the one that, that wrote this song. She's the one, I believe, that departed uh, shortly after this in 97, 98. She grew up, and I can relate to this, she grew up listening to David Bowie albums on her Walkman. And I can't tell you, being a, an only child and um, not, I mean, I had an, having a real good solid group of friends in elementary school, and then later having a good group of friends in high school, but not really having, I had friends, but never really had that core group because my elementary friends went on to play soccer, which I wasn't a big soccer player. And it would be time until I'd run into you guys where we would have the same passion for movies and music and and literature and so forth. So it was a very solitary time for me. Middle school was, uh, I'd walk to school by myself. 
Uh, I'd ride my bike by myself a lot, but I always had my Walkman with me. And the amount of music that I discovered during that time is just priceless. And so I remember listening to David Bowie on my Walkman among many, many other artists, right? And so I can, can relate. It's kind of cool thinking that there was somebody else walking around. I'm sure a lot of people did, obviously, but listening to music before their time on their own without somebody to kind of guide, guide their listening, you know, listening to stuff for oh, the first yeah. time. Yeah. Um, anyway, and I love the line. There's a great line in this where she talks about with teenage medication flowing through my veins. If that isn't a 90s <laughs> Prozac Nation yeah, line. Just spot on. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't know a lot from Vercasol. I just, I like what I hear. I like their sound. Uh, I like their guitar sound. I, I just, everything. The, the vocals, so I'm going to have to spend some more time listening to their stuff. Now, as for David Bowie, what did he think about the song? I have no idea. The <laughs> internet appears to be silent on this topic. Yeah. I, you know, this, that is one of the things. I, mean, I was fascinated with this particular theme for our mixtape, and I think we've come up with an eclectic. It's, it's going to be a lot of fun to listen to this. But this was one of those episodes that was hit or miss in terms of finding information. Sure. I mean, there are some times where our theme lends itself to huge hits where you can find you can find books of information about the song. But there are also times where there's nothing. I mean, like Steve McQueen for Sheryl Crow. Oh, literally, yeah. all I can do is tell you, give you my review of the album. I, there, there was nothing to find, you know. Well, I was really uh, nervous about the Flaming Lips song, right? Mm. Because it's so obscure. But I came across a periodical... Um, came out, I guess at the time the EP came out, where a journalist just asked him straight out, and they, they end up discussing this song for a couple pages of text. Oh. And so that's how I was able to get into the idea that, you know, it was very detailed about how it was awkward and how he felt that Jack White was really there to see back more than them and, and so forth. So I got lucky on that one. Yeah. Yeah, it's just, I, because my next one is, is very similar. I mean, there's not, it's very straightforward. But this is another one where I had some fun, okay? Earlier, I shared a track where the name dropped Celebrity Answers. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to give you a song where the name dropped Celebrity is the artist himself. Oh, that's my last pick, too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I said it was the only song I could think of where the artist... Things about themselves, but maybe you came up. Obviously, you came up with another one. Yeah. Okay. Well, this is well, interesting. Okay. Well, um, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think. I'm remembering what you brought, and I'm trying to think what your last. Doesn't matter. I'll yeah. Get to okay. It. Go yeah. Ahead. Well, we definitely have different choices. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> so, say hello to country outlaw David Allen Coe. Oh yes. Okay. If you can believe it, Coe's edgy sound struggled to earn respect and airplay within the country and western recording industry during the 1970s. But his now infamous track, You Never Even Called Me By My Name, earned him the first top ten hit from his album, Once Upon a Rhyme. Well, it was all that I could do to keep from crying You don't have to call me darling, darling. You never even call me by my name. 
You don't have to call me Waylon Jennings And you don't have to call me Charlie Price And you don't have to call me Merle Haggard anymore even though you're on my fighting side And I'll hang around as long as you will let me And I never minded standing in the rain But you don't have to call This self-described perfect country and western song was written by Steve Goodman and John Prine. It was penned as a lyrical middle finger to the music industry in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. And when Goodman gave Coe the track, Coe said there was no way it would be a successful country song without any references to, quote, mama, or trains, or trucks, or prison, or beer. Or getting drunk. Or dogs. Yep. <laughs> Fishing. So Goodman countered by adding the final spoken verse that humorously adds all of those cliches. And it makes this, I mean, it brings the song together and it's just, it's still to this day, it's, it's to me, it is just hilarious. But in the song's second verse, Cole lists off and does some cheeky impressions of Waylon Jennings, Charlie Pride, and Merle Haggard. So he names drop, he name drops those three uh, who were some of the genre's biggest stars at the time. Even though the track was written about the initial introduction of pop music into the country's genre, it's a song many traditionalists have found themselves coming back to in recent years. Now, with country music splitting between pop and Americana, Coe's anthemic single is is really worth revisiting. But as far as the name drop, Coe laments to his sweetheart in the song. He He sings, Well, it was all that I could do to keep from crying, Sometimes it seemed so useless to remain, but you don't have to call me darling, darling. You never even called me by my name. And later he concedes, the only time I know I'll hear David Allen Coe is when Jesus has his final judgment day. So you take the song at face value, it's literally about a man who cannot get his girlfriend to call him by his name. And I thought, okay, so he name drops himself. I'm going to have some fun with this. Yeah, no, it's good. Yeah, But I am... Um, yeah, but I couldn't find anything, any information about it. It was another one that just, I mean, everyone knows, all you have to do is listen to the track to know that it was written by, you know, John Prine and Steve Goodman. But beyond that, and it, it was a middle finger to the Nash Nashville, even Buffett, that's how Buffett ended up in the, in the Keys, because like Nashville... The, yeah. Would you know? Would not give him an in. Um, Is that where uh, like outlaw country comes in? I, I don't know a lot about the country music history, but I know in the seventies, like Willie Nelson, they Willie were considered like Waylon. outlaw country. Yeah, and and David Allen Coe is yeah, one of right, them. Yeah, right. um, yeah. It's basically because they didn't play by Nashville's rules right. that that's where the the idea of outlaw country comes from. But yeah, no, I just thought I I couldn't think of any other song where the artist has to name drop himself. So yeah, no, I that's thought, interesting. let's have some, now you said your last pick though. Yes. 
because I've listened through. But 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 in title, in title only. Oh 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 oh. Never mind. I, I see. I, I count titles because your name dropping either in the lyrics of the song or the title of the yep. song. Now I, now I know what song's left. Okay. All right. Yep. You ready? I'm Give me a, to go. Right. Yeah. I'm go talking about it. the Ballad of John and Yoko. This is a song when I first heard it, and you'd be surprised at how late I heard it finally for the first time. I'll talk about why. Um, th- that I thought that was really unusual that they wrote a song about themselves. I mean, I know that they had referenced themselves before. Like, for instance, in um, on the White Album, in Glass Onion, he says the wall versus With Paul. Paul yeah. You know, there, there are moments like that where they're aware of themselves, uh, but not as direct as with this track. So... Written by John, uh, but credited, as always, Linda McCartney, uh, the song tells about the events surrounding John and Yoko's wedding. The song actually went to number one in the UK. Did it really? It went to number one in the UK. If you, there's a compilation album called One by the Beatles. Right. It has all 17 number one, British number one songs. Oh, there's a British for, okay. That's that's the only version. One is their British number one. I thought one was the actual American... No, uh, Billboard number one. No, songs. no, no, no. That's it's called one because those are the seventeen British number one gotcha. songs. Gotcha. Okay, I never bought it because I already own all yeah. the music. <laughs> so I have it for some reason, but yeah. And so this song was their seventeenth and last number one hit in the UK. In the US, it only went to number eight, but not without controversy. Several radio stations banned the song because of the word use of Christ and yeah. crucifixion. And John's apparent comparison between himself and the Christian Savior. And so because of that, and of course that wasn't the first time John's no, done that, that. that was not the first time. No. Now, now when, when he said the Beatles were bigger than Jesus, he kind of backpedaled and basically said more popular than Jesus. What he meant was that kids were more excited about listening to the Beatles than going to church. He wasn't saying that right. the Beatles yeah. were bigger than Jesus Christ. Yeah. And that got misconstrued, and people oh, yeah. burned right? burned all their Beatles albums. And so he comes back again and does the same thing, uh, comparing the way that he's being treated by the press, uh, he and Yoko, uh, as the way Jesus was treated when he was on this earth. So that's just John being John. Yeah. Apparently, when John got back from his honeymoon, he was so excited to record the song that he went over to Paul's house. Now, this is when there were a lot of tensions going on, right? They started Apple Music, which was going to be their their company. They were going to sign other artists. And then um, Paul was not voted the president, and he was miffed about that. And so they were kind of going through all this stuff. Um, What I love about this is it's almost like a glimpse of when they were kids because John is so excited about this, and Paul really 
didn't want to do this song, but saw how hurt John was with the press treatment and how this would go a long way to helping John deal with that, that he said he dropped everything and they went to the studio together, the two of them. And it's one of the few tracks, it's just the two of them. It's just John and Paul. In fact, in the studio chatter version of the song, which I believe is on Anthology 3, yeah. you hear John once say, all right, Ringo, that's great. Pick up the pace a little bit. And Paul goes, okay, George, come in with that guitar solo because they wanted to give the impression that all four of them were playing on the track. It was just the two of them. But I really like that fact that just the two of them went into the studio and, and even Yoko, and she didn't get along with Paul necessarily. Um, um, right. Uh, but, but even Yoko said that Paul has a really very brotherly side to him and she was really impressed at how Paul just dropped everything put away their differences went with John into the studio they worked for this for several days or maybe I don't know how, exactly how long but they worked on it for a significant amount of time and then, and then they released it uh, the reason why the other two weren't there Paul or George was out of the country and Ringo was filming um, a movie um, which is called The Magic Christian I've never seen it I've never even heard it, of it. it starred Peter Sellers. It sounds very British. Yeah. Peter Sellers and John Cleese and, and a bunch of people, but uh, Ringo was in that. So that's why the two of them were not able to um, to be at the recording session. Um, George was asked, I love this, George was asked later if he felt slighted or offended that they did not include him on the recording of the song. And he said, no, the song was none of his business. Had the song been called The Ballad of John, George, and Yoko, then he would have cared. <laughs> <laughs> of course, this is when really George was kind of restless to get out of the band and work with other artists right. at this time. So oh, yeah. that makes sense. Um, so that now makes sense to me why this is one of those songs that I did not hear till much later. Because much of the Beatles, I, I think my very first Beatles cassette that I had was the Capitol um, record. I think they were the Capitol number ones. It wasn't called one. It was just called Beatles right. Greatest Hits, I think. Yeah, there was the blue and the red. Yeah, but this wasn't that either. Oh, this was, it was a white cassette. White cassette. And it was just called like the Beatles, and it was the capital whatever. It was the capital number ones. Okay, I, don't, I can't even envision. I, it was just, yeah, I'm sure there have been a million of those kinds right, of releases right, here yeah, and there. Yeah, but that's yeah. what I had on cassette. And then I started buying individual records. But of course, this was a single. So unless you got Hey Jude, which was a, a compilation of the singles from the latter half of the Beatles, or Past Masters, right. part two, yeah. then I wouldn't have heard this song. So then when I finally get around to buying the, the, blue, and, the blue album and the, the red Greatest Hits Package yeah. compilation, which came out, I think, in 73, maybe? Yeah. Um, and I was really thrown, I was thrown by several things. Thrown by the fact that it was so self, um, you know, self-centered, and tell, I mean, you know I'm saying, about, about themselves. I suppose you self could say self-centered too. Self Self-referential. Referential, okay. Yeah. Uh, and I was also surprised about how he compared himself to Christ. But it was such a catchy song, and I was surprised that I hadn't heard it before, but now it makes sense, because it, our, our puritanical America kind of prevented it from yeah. becoming a big radio hit. Well, and, you know, the Past Masters, especially those two CDs, I um, it, it's kind of funny, because I started buying the Beatles albums, and I started with the early Beatles, because that was, I knew, or, yeah, I, I knew she loves you, I knew I want to hold your hand. So I started with the early Beatles and worked my way almost chronologically. And I knew Hey Jude, especially, I mean, my younger self, I knew Hey Jude, I loved Hey Jude, and I could not figure out for the life of me why 
It was not on any of these albums. Yeah. It wasn't until much later that I just even discovered Past Masters, and it opened up a whole new world to me. Lady so, Madonna was another yeah, one. Yeah, Lady Madonna. They had a lot of singles. In fact, the kind of their M.O. at the time was to release an album with no singles, like Sgt. Pepper and the White Album, but then release singles, uh, you know, in solitude around right. those records. Yeah. So, yeah. no, I, yeah, and, and there was, I did have a cassette called, it was called... Hey Jude was the name of the cassette. Hmm. It had the, the picture from the photo sessions um, that Linda McCartney took in her garden of John's wearing a black suit with this long beard and this hat. Oh, yeah, yeah. You've seen those. Yeah, yeah. Um, I used to have a t-shirt with that on. I don't know what happened to it. but um, And it was a compilation of, um, is it Old Brown Shoe? Is that the name of the song from, oh, yeah. from, from George? Yeah. Uh, it also had Lady Madonna. It had Hey Jude on it. It had... Ballad John Yoko. It had a lot of those songs that later then, because what happened was when they released the CDs, they were all of the British versions right. of stereo versions. Actually, I, I didn't know this. This was the first stereo mix to be released in the UK. I don't know what they had against stereo over there, hmm. but the capital versions were all in stereo. And of course, they've been remixed since, but um, yeah, that was the, the, what was I saying now? I've totally lost my train of thought. Um, yeah. What was my point here? Uh, oh, okay. The so, singles. So when the CDs came out yeah. and they were releasing the British versions of them, um, they didn't re-release like the Hey Jude compilation and some of these other American compilations. There were a couple other American compilations that I thought were just regular records in their catalog but weren't. And that's when they thought, well, we'll make two CDs of all the extra stuff, all the B-sides, all the singles, and that's what Past Masters 1 and 2 ended yep. up being. So then you get some great B-sides, like um, You Know My Name, Look Up the Number. Oh, yeah. Which is... Great song. If not... Uh, the most experimental song after Revolution Number 9. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Revolution 9. Oh, my <laughs> good God. How that did not break up the band itself, I will never know. Came close. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, no, I just... When, when you... Uh, when you said that you picked a song like me, they were they named dropped them. So yeah, I, I totally forgot about. Yeah, because I, 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 they don't officially say John or Yoko right, yeah, in the yeah. song. Yeah, but it, it, the whole song is about themselves. Right. So I, I well, and what's really what I always loved about it is that the the song itself, the lyrics are first person. Right. But the title is third right you know to me it was just i always well, that, found that kind of fascinating as a kid and of course so. there are a lot of autobiographical songs out there oh yeah but the difference with this one is it's it the name their name is in the is title in the so title. that's where i yeah differentiate it from other autobiographical right. songs well, i'm glad you picked this one instead of dear yoko i'll give you that oh yeah <laughs> so, um at least john's included it, it he's a part of uh the storytelling here right um Oh, and then uh, you, you could have um, Beautiful Boy. I could have took because oh, yeah. he named drops sure. yeah. Sean at the end of For it. Sean. Sean's not a huge icon of pop culture or anything, but no. he does name drop. No. Um, Very true. His son. All right. Um, All right. It's time to figure out what order we're going to well, put these songs I got, in. I got one. Oh, more. my goodness. What got am I trying to do? More. Cut you off. I, well, I'm used okay. to being last. <laughs> <laughs> All right. My last selection, really, it was perhaps my favorite song of 2020. Um, it was certainly one of the greatest songs from that year. Uh, it's titled Song for Sam Cooke, Here in America. It's by Dion, and it features Paul Simon. We traveled this land back in 19- 
rock the set We walk the streets at night and smoke a cigarette here in America I didn't know About the way that life could go Here in America Down the block I saw the people stop and stare You did your best to make a Yankee boy aware I never thought about the color of your skin I never worried Tell I was in here in America whoa, whoa. Yeah, in America. in America But the places I could stay They all made you walk away Here in America Now, if you don't know Dion, that would be Dion DiMucci. We're talking Dion and the Belmonts. We're talking the Wanderer, Run Around Sue. I mean, this is, he is, you know, Dion of, of oldies fame, true oldies fame, not not uh, Motley Crue as classic rock, you know, heart, you know, going back to 1985 from last week. He, he was a 50s doo-wopper, Dion, and in 2020, he released this remarkable album. I mean, just it, it blew me away. I'd never heard this song. Really? No, I oh. love it. Yeah, it's, it, the entire album. You love gotta it. Check it out. Um, here's the thing: at any American moment, this vision of transcending racism, especially with these two voices on it, would resonate. I think very powerfully. But at the moment that this track was released, at the moment the album was released, but this track specifically, the presidential election was over but not finished. COVID deaths and sickness were on the rise. Police shootings were unceasing. Um, you know, this song of brotherhood was perfect. It was, it was almost needed. Um, and it embodied the spirit of Sam Cooke. I mean, it, this song is a true story. And it, it tells of how Sam Cooke protected Dion and empowered, um, and how and how Sam Cooke was empowered by, by you know, a beautifully visceral melody. And it's a song from 2020 that will remain always at the top of the list of essential songs for that moment, hmm. I think. Nice. Um, the track comes from Dion's album. The album was titled Blues with Friends, uh, which features Dion with a cavalcade of famous friends, including Van Morrison, Bruce Springsteen, Billy Gibbons, Jeff Beck. And his old friend Bob Dylan wrote the liner notes. Huh. Okay. It's, it's a rich album. I mean, it really is. It's just phenomenal. And it burns with the electric blues in all directions and more. And, and more like th- this song, which was written years earlier and rescued from the drawer, where it could have remained unsung forever. It's emboldened and expanded, I think, beautifully by Paul Simon's harmony. A few things, I think, sound better right now, especially in these incendiary, divisive times, than the sound of these two voices. You know, um, our, our old friends blended together. Simon and Dion, to my knowledge, had never performed together, but they harmonize on this track beautifully. Um, when you when you hear the two of them, for me, it's it's just this warm, 
comforting sound. It's, it's easy to imagine them as, as a duo who've been singing together for decades. You know, the effect of those voices and harmony is, is simply, I think, sublime. Um, and it's a hopeful sound because Simon, Simon is two years younger than Dion. And Simon is the guy who wrote long ago how terribly strange to be 70. Right? Now he's like 74. And now he's just shy of 80 himself. Oh, is he? Yeah, he's uh, 79, I believe, okay. now. Um, and he's still sounding as great as ever most of the time. And he's singing perfect two-part harmony on this song like he's been doing it his whole life, which, of course, he has, right? So, you know, here you have a rock and roll song that still sounds, to me, just so vital. And according to Dion, at first he just had the melody. And the melody, when it first begins, it emulates Cook's What a Wonderful World. I mean, it's, it's on mm-hmm. guitar, but that's, right, right. that's the melody. And then he also had the refrain, Here in America. And it was a friend of Dion's, I guess, who suggested that he use an episode from his memoir that he had written about walking southern streets with Sam Cooke in 1962. Because according to Dion, it's a, it's a good story. It's a true story. He said, we were in the South together, and I knew nothing about Jim Crow. We were walking the streets, and they came upon you know just the racial tension of the time, and people on the street were not only after Sam Cooke, they were also after the white boy who was friends with Sam Cooke, and he said Sam stood up for him, Sam protected him, Sam educated him, and he said he was a good guy. Dion said he really, really misses him. So Dion finished the song, he said. He put it aside, thinking it was too personal for other people to connect with. He put it in a drawer, and I guess it remained there unsung and unrecorded for decades. Well, we should all count ourselves lucky, I think, that he decided to do, to release it now, and Paul Simon, I think, was the perfect accompaniment to, to the song. I don't, I don't want to talk too so, much. So the album is Dion with other artists, not Paul Simon with other artists, right? Yeah, okay. it's Dion yeah. with yeah, yeah. other artists. I, I don't want to talk too much about the track because it's best listened to without preface, but pay very close attention. One of the things that I love is all of the Sam Cooke. And there, there's a lot of, how do, how do I say it? There are a lot of little innuendo, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the song that, that can be traced back to Sam Cooke Lyrics, Sam Cooke's songs. Yeah, that's cool. That. Um, especially, I love the added grunts and groans because stylistically they mirror Cooke's background vocals from Chain Gang when they begin on this track. Uh, this song is just a masterpiece, and I, I thought it's definitely one that I wanted to include here. I, every, I, anyone who listens to the podcast knows I'm a Sam Cooke obsessive so yeah I, I had not heard it and it immediately made an impression on me yeah I'm looking forward to going back and listening to it more yeah oh, and the entire album I mean you'll you'll love it it, it is really really cool so alright now now we can sequence we can sequence <laughs> alright we are going to take a look at these songs we're never sure how this is going to go because uh, like usual it's all over the map uh, in the sense of genre um, but we're going to give it a shot and we will be right back after this all right, and we're back, and we did it again, folks. We did it again. We were able to make a mixtape from these songs. And, Alan, why don't you tell them the order? All right. Well, side A, we do begin with 1985 by Bowling for Soup. And why not? We already said they sounded very much alike. That goes into Phoebe Cates by Phoenix TX. Then Nancy Sinatra by The Battle Rockets, followed by With David Bowie by Veruca Salt. Buddy Holly by Weezer. 
Thank you, Jack White, for the fiber optic Jesus you gave me. By, <laughs> I, I just like saying the, the title. You know? Random title <laughs> right. in music history. By the Flaming Lips. That leads into Brian Wilson by Bare Naked Ladies. Andy Warhol by David Bowie. Warhol. Warhol. <laughs> Warhol. That just sounds so wrong. I'm going to continue Warhol. saying that the way I've always said um, it. Uh, after Bowie, uh, we had The Ballad of John and Yoko by The Beatles, followed by Uma Thurman by Fall Out Boy. That is followed by Sir Duke by Stevie Wonder, and we end Side A with Debbie by the B-52s. Side B, we begin with Betty Davis Eyes by Kim Carnes, then Candle in the Wind by Elton John, Night Shift by the Commodores, When Smokey Sings by ABC, followed by Robert De Niro's Waiting by Bananarama, The Miracle of Joey Ramone by U2, followed by Steve McQueen by Sheryl Crow, It's Five O'Clock Somewhere, by Alan Jackson, featuring Jimmy Buffett, followed by Springsteen by Eric Church, You Never Even Called Me By My Name by David Allen Coe, then Man on the Moon by R.E.M., and we do finish the mixtape with Song for Sam Cooke, Here in America, by Dion, featuring Paul Simon. Okay, so what do we have next? What's uh, what's coming up? Okay, well, we are going to actually have every every mixtape of course is a two part episode but we are going to have two mixtapes in succession both are Gen X covers so it's it's kind of hard to to, to explain it, it's not hard to explain at all but, but I want to make sure that I explain it well our next two part episode we are going to give you songs from Generation X songs from the 70s 80s and 90s that were covers even if we did not know it at the time then, Gen X covers part two, which will be the two-part episode that follows. We are going to give you today's artists, songs recorded since 2000 that are covers of Gen X songs, meaning today's remakes, reboots, covers of songs from the 70s, 80s, and 90s. So it's Gen X covers part one and Gen X covers part two. Hopefully I explained that well. Yeah, that no, you sense. did. That was great. Okay. That was great. Because um, I know, even as I explained it to you the first time, it, it kind of lost well, you at first. Well, a lot so. of times, trying to hone our criteria can be difficult because right. you need to get into an area where it's consistent and the field isn't too big to choose from, but not too small to choose from. Right. And um, once I kind of figure out where we're going to go with it, then, then it's easy for me. But this one was interesting because there were some songs that I tried to keep mine, you know, pretty consistent as far as. Gen X artists doing old, you know, covers versus a classic rock artist maybe mm. doing a cover. Okay. So all mine are by Gen X. The first part, all mine are Gen X artists, and my second one are all Gen X songs. Well, and, and that that was the the point, right? Right. More or less. What I'm know. saying is, uh, I don't have anything like, um, let's say, Bruce Springsteen. Well, I guess you could consider him a Gen X artist because he had a lot of popularity, obviously, in the '80s, but. I don't know. I, I'm trying to say. I guess so, a, a '60s artist. Like I wouldn't have like Bob Dylan necessarily oh, doing a cover. No, 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 I got you. Because Bob yeah. Dylan wouldn't be considered a Gen right. X artist. That's yeah. what I'm saying. All right. my artists were yeah Gen X, and I did the same. Yeah, th- that was the point. Yeah, all the artists in part one are Gen X artists singing songs, right? Singing covers of songs that came before them. Yep. And then yeah, part two will be our songs, uh, Gen X songs. 
Yeah, I'm excited for this, Recorded especially night. the second part, because they're yeah. really cool. There are a lot of newer indie versions of some of these yeah. songs out there. I mean, every season we do an Uncharted, we do a new millennium, you know, where we try to introduce new music to people. Really, Gen X covers part two. It, it is an Uncharted. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it is a new millennium mixtape because chances are good because I know what songs I've picked at least chances are good our our listening audience has not heard the right. majority of these covers and, and my, my choices were songs that sound dramatically different than the original I tried to do that for the most part too yeah, yeah as much as I could um, in fact I think all of them are I wouldn't say radically well some are radically different but all of them feature something that sets them very much apart from the original version so yeah. that was the idea so that, right. that is uh, our two, our four-part, I guess, four-part episode that follows uh, in the months ahead. Um, That'll take us all the way to Halloween. Do we have another Halloween episode in us? I don't know. Um, I don't know if we, I, I wasn't, I don't know if we're going to do Halloween or not this year. I mean, we can. I feel like there's not much left. I mean, Well, maybe we can take Halloween. We, we, we can go obscure and, you know, Well, or we take it into a different direction. Possibly. Yeah. Right. Songs that mention Halloween themed things like cats and bats and haunted house. I don't know. We could probably come up with something. Well, we've we've toyed with candy in the past. Yeah. For Valentine's Day, Halloween. Yeah, that's um, possible. Yeah. But as you have pointed out many times when I brought it up, the songs are not about candy. Yeah, they're never. About, <laughs> which, they're never actually about right, candy. Which I don't know that that matters. except for the Candyman. That well, might be the only song. Yeah, true. I don't know that that really. And they're still no, candy I know, songs, I know, but I am. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. Um, we could do a euphemisms episode. <laughs> there you go. That all the different ways that sex is talked about, but without saying the word sex. There you go. That that would, that's an episode. <laughs> how do you even begin to select? The, that would be. Cr- oh man. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, we'll have to that's think not about a bad that. idea. Yeah. I yeah. kind of like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll see where that goes. Absolutely. All right. Well, that is it for this week. We will be back next month. uh, What, roughly two weeks we'll be back. Um, And again, please drop us a line. If you uh, have an idea for an episode, uh, mixtape theme, please let us know. We'd love to hear from you. Um, We can always uh, use more reviews to widen our audience. We are very appreciative whenever anybody uh, reviews or, or rates our podcast, especially on Apple Podcasts, that makes a huge difference in uh, earning new listeners. Um, we do have a Patreon account. Yep. Well, we haven't really done anything. We with haven't it done yet. anything with it. But if you're so kind that you want to, you know, help us out because there 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 are costs to what we do, but we do it because we love it. Um, I don't know. We keep saying we're going to do something with the Patreon account and make it worthwhile, but. We, we but then I hear I am writing a book and not, yeah, right. not spending the time I thought I would have on the summer to, right. to do that. But I need I to, I'll, I'll carve out some time. Yeah, well, we'll, we'll figure something out. I um, I don't know. I would like to reward, especially the listeners that have been with us from the beginning. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, we we've we've built up quite an audience, and I want to thank everybody for joining us uh, as we've done that. But we we do have some listeners. They've been here since episode one, and heaven knows we've changed. Yep. dramatically since that first first go um please support our sponsor jay callahan painting you can find her on facebook serving the greater cleveland area am i missing anything no i think that's it okay so that's all for this time hot funk cool punk even if it's old junk 
Another mix of memories awaits next time. But for now, press pause, lift that needle, and hit eject, and we will see you on the flip side. Sitting in a box undigified Gonna rewind and give them one more try Think about the days of lo-fi Mixtape Memorex and TDK Getting music out there the old-fashioned way Making the greatest hits of one day Mixtape Phonograph and dual cassette Before you could get everything on the internet But some things ain't made it there yet Mixtape Line in, line out If you don't have a line Hold the recorder to the speaker Turn the volume to nine Here's an accidental slice of time Turn the volume to nine.